GeoGwitch and welcome back to GeoGwitch Ministries or welcome to GeoGwitch Ministries if it is your first time. I hope you find today's sermon enjoyable but more so I hope you find it edifying and even convicting. If you are a non-believer I hope you stick around and I hope that God uses this sermon in your life to bring you to the faith. God bless and enjoy. Justin Peters has a seminar called Clouds Without Water. Obviously, he got that phrase from the book of Jude. Uh, I thought it was a cool name, uh, such a cool name, in fact, that I decided to use it for this sermon. Uh, today, no, seriously, so today we will be looking at the concept of clouds without water, or at least that's part of what we'll be looking at. Um, we'll be looking at like the underlying topics of what that means. But what does that actually mean? Well, let's find out. First though, we must of course continue our tradition of reading the entire book of Jude before rereading the specific section which we will be looking at. And like I say, I really, um, I do enjoy this tradition. It, it, it is so rare. I, I couldn't do this with the book of Jude or the book of Luke, not even the book of Hosea. The book of Hosea takes like half an hour to read. So there's just no time. So it's nice to be able to have a book where you can just read the whole way through and still have time to preach on it. But I won't have any time if I keep rambling. So let's go. So the book of Jude. Jude, a servant of Jesus Christ and brother of James. To those who are called beloved in God the Father and kept for Jesus Christ, may mercy, peace and love be multiplied to you. Beloved, though I was e although I was eager to write to you about our common salvation, I found it necessary to write appealing to you to contend for the faith that was once for all delivered to the saints. For certain people have crept in unnoticed who long ago were designated for this condemnation. Ungodly people who pervert the grace of our God into sensuality and deny our only Master and Lord, Jesus Christ. Now I want to remind you, although you once fully knew it, that Jesus, who saved the people out of the land of Egypt, afterward destroyed those who did not believe. And the angels who did not stay within their own position of authority, but left their proper dwelling, he has kept in eternal chains under gloomy darkness until the judgment of the great day. Just as Sodom and Gomorrah and the surrounding cities, which likewise indulged in sexual immorality and pursued unnatural desire, served as an example by undergoing a punishment of eternal fire, yet in like manner these people also, relying on their dreams, defile the flesh, reject authority and blaspheme the glorious ones. But when the archangel Michael, contending with the devil, was disputing about the body of Moses, he did not presume to pronounce a blasphemous judgment, but said, The Lord rebuke you. But these people blaspheme all that they do not understand, and they are destroyed by all that they, like unreasoning animals, understand instinctively. Woe to them, for they walked in the way of Cain and abandoned themselves for the sake of gain to Balaam's error and perished in Korah's rebellion. These are hidden reefs at your love feasts, as they feast with you without fear. Shepherds feeding themselves, waterless clouds, swept along by winds, fruitless trees in late autumn, twice dead, uprooted. Wild waves of the sea, casting up the foam of their own shame, wandering stars for whom the gloom of utter darkness has been reserved forever. 
It was also about these that Enoch the seventh from Adam prophesied, saying, Behold, the Lord comes with ten thousand of his holy ones to execute judgment on all and to convict all the ungodly of all their deeds of ungodliness that they have committed in such an ungodly way, and of all the harsh things that ungodly sinners have spoken against him. These are grumblers, malcontents, following their own sinful desires. They are loud mouthed boasters, showing favoritism to gain advantage. But you must remember, beloved, the predictions of the apostles of our Lord Jesus Christ. They said to you, in the last time there will be scoffers following their own ungodly passions. It is these who cause divisions, worldly people devoid of the Spirit. But you, beloved, building yourselves up in your most holy faith and praying in the Holy Spirit, Keep yourselves in the love of God, waiting for the mercy of our Lord Jesus Christ that leads to eternal life. And have mercy on those who doubt. Save others by snatching them out of the fire. To others show mercy with fear, hating even the garment stained by the flesh. Now to him who is able to keep you from stumbling and to present you blameless before the presence of his glory with great joy. To the only God, our Saviour. Through Jesus Christ, our Lord, be glory, majesty, dominion and authority before all time and now and forever. Amen. Now I will reread a specific section we're going to be studying today and that is of course Jude 8, 9, 10, 11, 12 and 13. Yet in like manner, these people also, relying on their dreams, defile the flesh, reject authority, and blaspheme the glorious ones. But when the archangel Michael, contending with the devil, was disputing about the body of Moses, he did not presume to pronounce a blasphemous judgment, but said, The Lord rebuke you. But these people blaspheme all they do not understand. And they are destroyed by all that they, like unreasoning animals, understand instinctively. Woe to them, for they walked in the way of Cain and abandoned themselves for the sake of gain of Balaam's error and perished in Kor's rebellion. These are hidden reefs at your love feasts. As they feast with you without fear, shepherds feeding themselves, waterless clouds swept along by winds, fruitless trees in late autumn, twice dead, uprooted, wild waves of the sea, casting up the foam of their own shame, wandering stars for whom the gloom of utter darkness has been reserved forever. We go to verse 8. Here we hear about people who rely on dreams as their authority. This practice is linked with defiling the flesh, rejecting authority and blasphemy. I don't think it's just linked with these things though. I think it leads to these things. If you rely on your own dreams to know what's up, then you don't need another authority. You don't need biblical counsel or advice. Obviously at the time they didn't have a complete version of the Bible. Um, although people said that they had no Bible at the time, that's just not true. Uh, they had the Old Testament, I think they would have had some of the writings of the New Testament by now. Uh, I believe it's the book of, I can't remember what book it is, but the, you know, the Bereans, the story of the Bereans who were told something by an apostle and went to check the scriptures and Paul, I think it was, said to them, well done, because that was a good thing to do. Because the scriptures are above all. 
which sort of, sort of gets rid of this idea that anything can be with the scriptures because this was an apostle telling them something and they had to make sure by comparing it to what scripture they did have. So that shows that scripture is above all. So to say that they didn't have scripture because people like to make those jokes like, oh, a sort of scriptura can't be true because there was no Bible uh, at the time of Jesus. Yes, there was. There was most of the Bible by the time of Jesus. It would be two-thirds of the Bible by the time of Jesus. So, we'll dispel that myth now. So, but they didn't have the full Bible. But they did have the Apostles and the Apostolic Teaching. Obviously, at the time, I don't know. Um, they did have the teachings which now almost exclusively exist within the Bible. But the people who relied on their own dreams rejected the authority um, of these apostles. They rejected the proper authority and that led them straight to sin. They defiled the flesh and committed a particular type of blasphemy, uh, which we will look at in a little while, what particular type of blasphemy they committed. And people say, the thing with Sola Scriptura, it's not about the format. It doesn't matter that it's um, written down in a sense. It does in another sense, but not in a certain sense. It doesn't matter in the sense that it's not the fact that it's ink on paper that's important. It's the fact that it's the Word of God. The fact that it's written down is how we know it's the Word of God. Traditions come and go like fans. You look at the Catholic Church, the history of the Catholic Church, it is a history of traditions that come and go. They are prevalent and then they are forgotten about. Now, some stay, that's true. Some last a long time. But a lot don't. And almost every council, well, I won't say almost every, but a good number of councils are just a bunch of Catholics getting together and say, you know that thing which we said was divine truth last time? Well, we were wrong. But this is divine truth. And then the next time a council is called, they say, well, actually, that we were wrong that time. You don't see that with the Bible. There's no part of the Bible that goes over itself and says, oh, well, actually, last time I was wrong, but this is true. And then the next book, well, actually, that was wrong, but this is true. You don't see that with the Bible. It's consistent and reliable. As well as that, it being ink on paper, whatever form it's existed in, hasn't been what's made it divine, but it's been what's made it reliable because there's a paper trail. We can't go back in time 1900 years to the first century, and the second century, excuse me, and, you know, see what people were saying what they were speaking to each other, what oral traditions they had. But we can go back and see what was written down and what writings have survived. There were probably plenty of, uh, in fact, I'm sure there have been plenty of traditions in the Catholic Church that people at a certain time taught that are definitely biblical truth since the time of Jesus that we've just forgotten about because they were never recorded, because they came and went. You don't have that with the Bible. We have thousands of manuscripts of the Bible that we can look at and say, well, this is what our Bible says today. What did it say almost 2,000 years ago? Or for the Old Testament, three or 4,000 years ago, however old that is, I'm not exactly sure. I can go back and say, what did it say then? Close to the time it was written. Oh, it says the same thing that it says today. That's good. What about tradition? Well, either we have written documents of, the, of tradition which go against what's being said today, or we have no documentation of the tradition, so it just can't be verified. It's a rare enough thing that doctrines that exist purely within the tradition of the Catholic Church 
and not within scripture can be verified within the first few hundred years of the church's existence. So there's a bit of a case of sola scriptura. We can't rely on our own stuff, our own tradition, because it'll lead to sin. It'll lead to people here doing things like defiling their flesh and committing particular types of blasphemy or any type of blasphemy. And these people who deny the proper authority in favour of their own dreams do seem to be modern precursors to groups like the Roman Catholic Church and to the Charismatics. And the Roman Catholic Church believes that their own traditions are on equal footing with sacred scripture. And this is despite the fact that, like I've said, their traditions change rapidly. Just look at indulgences, or the idea that being left-handed is sinful. These were things where once, uh, the, the, these were once things believed by the Catholic Church, but then they just abandoned the idea. These are things that, you look at the way Catholics talk about any of their doctrines today. If these same Catholics lived at the time of indulgences, or the time of being left-handed being a sin, They'd be speaking about those things the same way they speak about their modern doctrines. Although in the modern day, they look back at indulgences and the whole thing about being left-handed with, if they have any common sense, embarrassment. I'm not even a Catholic and I look back with embarrassment. Just because they're lumped in with a group of Christian, the, 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 the big heading of Christian. Their own traditions, they change rapidly. Here's the thing. If these traditions were truly equal to scripture, then surely these ideas, which I've just mentioned, were equal to scripture because they existed purely within tradition. Then, let's assume that they are equal to scripture. Either these ideas were true, in which case the Catholic Church has erred by abandoning them, or let's assume they're not true, in which case the Catholic Church erred by introducing them. Either way, the Catholic Church made a mistake. They handled tradition incorrectly. They, e they either believed a false tradition in the past, or they currently believe a false tradition. Either way is proof that the Catholic traditions cannot be relied, uh, relied upon. They are not on the same level as the Bible. They cannot be trusted in the same way as the Bible. Either they were right before and they're wrong now, or they were wrong before, in which case it proves that they were wrong, unlike the Bible, because the Bible can't be wrong. Either way, they have proven themselves untrustworthy. Now, the other group, I mentioned two, Roman Catholic Church and the Charismatics. At least I'm pretty sure I mentioned two. Uh, if I didn't, the Roman Catholic Church and the Charismatics, the second church, or the second group is the Charismatics, um, and it's sort of the same idea, but in a different way. Plenty of charismatics believe in the idea of modern-day prophecy and prophets. And they also believe uh, that God still speaks to people today. And in, and in order to, because a lot of them are Protestants and they believe in Sola Scriptura, so in order to justify their belief in light of Sola Scriptura, they also claim that when God speaks today, it's not authoritative, or at least not as authoritative as it was when he was inspiring Scripture. It, it, it's it's a silly idea. It, it really is silly. And I'm going to show you how silly it is. Imagine, just an illustration to show you how silly it is. Imagine two people are working on a factory. And it's a Monday. You have Bob and Steve. And at one stage, the boss comes in. And he asks them both to go and do something. And so Bob and Steve, they stand up immediately. They go off and they do it. 
then Tuesday rolls around and Bob and Steve, same two guys, sit in the factory and the same boss comes in and tells them both to go and do something. Bob gets up and he goes and he goes to do it, but he stops because he knows Steve isn't coming. So he turns around and he says to him, hey Steve, what's going on? Why aren't you doing what you asked to? Then Steve says, what's she on about? Today is Tuesday. The boss doesn't have the same authority on a Tuesday that he had on the Monday. Just because. That was yesterday. He was more authoritative yesterday. Essentially, what I'm trying to say is that if it's the same God, then he's got just as much authority as he's always had. If he's still got the same authority as he did when he inspired the Bible, then everything he says is as important as the Bible and should be added to it or considered on equal footing. You cannot say the same God spoke with less authority. Because his authority doesn't come from a choice he makes. His authority doesn't come from, I'm going to choose to be authoritative today, but not tomorrow. That's not how it works. You don't choose how authoritative you are. Your authority comes from who you are. The only way God is less authoritative is if he's a different person. If he's, if he's just different somehow. I don't think we want to change that. The God who Hebrews says never changes has changed. That's not how it works. God hasn't changed. And because he hasn't changed, he's just as authoritative. He has the same authority. When he speaks, it has the same authority as it's always had. Now, when it comes to charismatics, or sorry, I've already read that this word, excuse me. Um, anyway, look, I just want to say something really quickly. People have a tendency of lying about cessationists such as myself and saying that we think that anyone who isn't a cessationist is not saved. I want to make it clear that's not what I believe at all. I, I believe that the charismatic cessation issue is an in-house one. Even if you believe in prophecy, even if you believe in personal revelation today, if you believe in all the things, the incorrect view of tongues, or if you believe in a correct view of tongues, but you believe they still happen today, and by incorrect view and correct view, I mean tongues, as is described in the Bible, was always a real language. It wasn't made up gibberish. It wasn't angel language. That's nonsense. But if you do believe in that, we are still brothers in Christ. So you're still my sister in Christ. Even if you do believe in that. But that doesn't mean I'm going to pretend that there aren't serious flaws in charismatic doctrine. No, God is not speaking today with the exception of the Bible. That and that alone is the word of God. Not tradition. Not supposed personal revelation. When we abandon the Bible and chase our own dreams, we are led straight into the path of sin. And the Bible teaches things like cessation. And here's the thing people don't know about. For example, with tongues, the interesting story of tongues. You know why people today speak gibberish and call it tongues? It's because the people who started the movement couldn't speak tongues. The guy who started the movement taught that he and his followers could speak in tongues without having to learn the languages. So he, in a big embarrassment, sent a bunch of his followers off to different countries without learning the languages, thinking they could speak in tongues. And so what you had was a bunch of annoyed people going, let's say they went to China. You had a bunch of annoyed Chinese people because Americans kept coming up to them, 
holding Bibles and going, oh, ching, chong, ching, or whatever, giving, <laughs> that's not me being, like, that's what they were doing. They were giving approximations of what they thought the language sounded like and thinking they were speaking the real language. And then when it turned out that, no, they weren't speaking the real language, they had to admit they were wrong, but they didn't want to lose their power. So they changed their mind and they just said, oh, well, I still want to say I speak in tongues, but tongues is a real language and I can't speak any other languages. So I'll just say that speaking in tongues is speaking gibberish. That's, that's the true history. I'm not making it up. That is the history of gibberish tongues. Because they're not in the Bible. No, it's angel language. I know there's a verse we bring up. You speak in tongues of men or angels. That's hyperbolic. That verse, I can't remember what specific verse it is. But that's the history of people speaking gibberish tongues. People, the people who started the movement understood that the Bible taught that tongues were real languages because that word tongue just means language. They understood the people could speak in real languages, or that's what tongues was, but when they themselves couldn't do it, they pretended it meant something else. Now, if you're an honest charismatic, you have to, that's just history, you have to admit that. If you know that, don't just take my word for it. I'm just some random guy on the internet. Don't just believe me. I don't ever want anyone to just believe me. Go look into, into it yourself, but actually put in some proper research. Actually bother to do it properly. And you will find that the founder of the modern-day charismatic sort of movement, um, I believe the guy who was involved in the supposed revival happened in 1901, I think. First of all, was a massive racist. I think he went on to join the KKK. I could be wrong about that. It was either him or someone who was heavily involved with the start of the movement was a massive racist went on to join the KKK, I'm pretty sure. Um, and then you have to ask yourself, could a man like that be indwelt by the Holy Spirit? Um, and second of all, the embarrassment that was him admitting that tongues was real languages until he needed to say it was something else to save face. I think we have six verses to get done today. Um, we're 21 minutes in and I've done one. So we're going to pick up the pace a wee bit now. Anyway, verse 9. Here we see something interesting. Jude is referring to an apocryphal work called The Assumption of Moses. This is not the only time Jude quotes um, a non-canonical book. He also quotes later from First Enoch. Now when Jude references these texts, he's not doing so in order to suggest that they are a part of the Bible. He's doing so because these stories likely would have been known to his audience at the time. And he thought it would be helpful to use situations from these stories, um, which were known to these people, to get his point across. So what point is Jude trying to make? When in Jude 8, we see that there is a particular type of blasphemy that is mentioned as being committed by false teachers. You, you remember, I said I'd come back to it. Well, here we are. Um, and a particular type of blasphemy was blasphemy against holy ones. Now this means angels. Here in Jude 9, we see that even the archangel Michael was unwilling to say something blasphemous against Satan. Now, this whole thing of um, Michael and Satan fighting over Moses' body, in reality, probably didn't actually happen. He is referring to a story, but he's referring to that story under the influence of the Holy Spirit. So the message he's trying to get across from using this illustration is definitely true whether or not the story he's referencing is historical or not doesn't matter the holy spirit saw fit to inspire jude to write this 
Therefore, we know we can trust, even if this didn't happen historically, what he's referring to, we know we can trust the message behind it. We see that Michael was unwilling to say something blasphemous against Satan, even though Satan was a fallen angel. And I think this shows that we must have reverence for the angels. They are higher beings than us. People sometimes say that when we die, we become angels. But that's not true. When we die, we become corpses. Or at the very least, our bodies do. Our souls get transported to heaven, if you're one of the elect. If you're not, then to, to hell. But we do not become angels. Angels are their own thing. They are created beings, created by God for his divine purposes. When we die, we will not become them. It's not like these reincarnation religions where you, if you live a good life, you die and become a holy snake or something. Um, which if I do have to be reincarnated, I'd like a guinea pig or a penguin, just for the record. <laughs> I'm only joking. Um, but this isn't the thing where if you do something right, you get to be reincarnated as some sort of a better or higher being. You're, you're a son or a daughter of God. You've been chosen by the Lord God Almighty to be redeemed from your own sins. That's good enough. Don't go chasing angel status. As if what you've already got wasn't enough. And I know that's not what most people are doing. Most people just don't understand. They say, oh, heaven gained another angel when someone dies. Just to say something nice. But just in case there is anyone who's genuinely hoping to be an angel. It's not going to happen. Verse 10, told you we'd go through these quicker. Here we see um, the blasphemy continued. These people, the false converts, do not understand God's word because they have abandoned it. Abandoned it. Because they have abandoned it and they do not understand it, they feel completely fine blaspheming it. At the same time, there are those things which uh, they understand instinctively. In other words, they rely on their own heart. To tell them things. To tell them what's up. And of course that's a problem. If you go to Jeremiah chapter 17 verse 9. We see that it says. The heart is deceitful above all things. And desperately sick. Who can understand it? We cannot rely on our own thoughts. And our own hearts to guide us. If we do. Jude says it will destroy us. And that's our own thoughts. Based on what our hearts tell us. Obviously we need to use our reason. And our rationale and our logic. This isn't a blind faith religion as some people try and claim from both inside the camp and outside, which is just baffling to me. Anyway, these people have relied on their own understanding of things based on their own sinful hearts. Because of this, that which they don't understand, which is the truth of God, they blaspheme. At the same time, that which they do understand, their own sin, leads them to destruction. They don't understand their own sin in the sense that they know that they're sinning. Instead, they understand that way of life. It's all they know. That's how they live. That's what they trust. They understand it in that way. And they follow it. But they don't understand that it will lead them to destruction. They don't understand that aspect well enough or even at all. But verse 11, here we see another set of three uh, we mentioned it set three last time. So these false converts are compared to Cain, Balaam and Korah. When we look at the story of Cain and Abel, we see the story of two brothers. And now in its simplest form, and I'm really simplifying it here, uh, it is the story of a good brother and a bad brother. 
obviously say um Cain wasn't or Abel wasn't good, but he was the good brother while Cain was the, the bad brother, but obviously Abel wasn't sinless. Now one day they both made sacrifices to the Lord. Abel's sacrifice was good and God congratulated him. Cain's was pitiful. So God reprimanded him, and this upset Cain. Cain got so upset that he went out and murdered his own brother. Cain was incapable of seeing that he had failed and so decided to take out his anger on his brother. Now false teachers are like this in a way. They are incapable of seeing that they are heretics. Because of this they spread their teachings and this angers God and it often leads to people getting hurt. There's a story I heard from wretched um, Todd Friel and his thing, I watched their YouTube channel, um, a story of, there was a there was a boy, I think he was like 15 years old, he was a teenager anyway, he had asthma, um, and he had an asthma attack, and I don't think he had his inhaler on him, and he was in a, he was in a place, uh, wasn't an extremely high traffic place, and he was found by a group of morons, a group of young people from Bethel, you know, Bill Johnson's whole thing. And these people were brought up believing they could heal people. The boy was on the ground, I believe, 19 minutes. Could be wrong, but I believe it was that. It was a long time on the ground. And they were praying over him. They were asking for healing, trying to heal him. Long time before someone copped on. And for whatever reason, I don't know, I think it was one of the Bethel crowd. One of them finally called the ambulance. The next four days, the boy was in the hospital. His family were with him, of course. And these Bethel morons kept coming in and praying for his healing, which is fine. Pray for healing. That's grand. I pray for healing. I pray for healing of my friends and so on. That's absolutely fine. But they were praying for this divine healing that they thought they could bring or some other crap. For four whole days, telling the family, this boy's going to get better, this boy's going to get better. And after four days, the boy was dead. A teenager, hadn't finished school, hadn't got to live his life, died in a hospital bed from something that could have been fairly easily treated if he'd been found by people who weren't morons. If those better people had just called the ambulance or someone else had found them, he'd probably still be alive today. But because the people who found him were idiots, who'd been brought up believing some lie, that they could heal people when they really couldn't, because that's not how healings work. In the modern day, God heals people either I believe he can still heal miraculously, but not through people. Either he does it just directly to the person, or, and this is how I'd say 99.9% .9 of healings happen, he heals them through medicine. One of the greatest gifts God has ever given us. But these Egypts, they waited so long before they finally did something useful. Young boy ended up dying because of it. It is a sad story. It's 
it's infuriating, it's angering, it's all of these things. But it's indicative of a problem. False doctrine hurts people. I know most charismatics don't have any malicious intent. But if you're a charismatic, I'm sorry, I have to say it. No, you can't heal people. No, you don't have the gift of healing. No, you don't have the gift of prophecy. No, you don't have the gift of tongues. We do still have gifts today. Kindness, being loving, being charitable, being forgiving. We have gifts of the Spirit today. You're not a miracle worker. Those gifts ended 2,000 years ago, a little bit less, when the last apostle died. You don't have those gifts. And if you come across someone on the street dying, you remember that. You call a bloody ambulance. Because if you rely on your own gifts that you don't have to help people, people will just get hurt because of you. I don't know if it's fair to blame the Bethel lads who found the boy completely. I don't know if it's fair to say that his death is their fault. But they bear some blame and so does Bill Johnson and so does Bethel and all the charismatic nonsense. It's not a nice story, lads. This crap hurts people. We'll move on. We go to Balaam or Balaam. I'm not sure how you say his name. I kind of keep... I've always said Balaam or, or Bal or Canon instead of Canaan. But I've been switching lately. So I don't know. I'm sort of switching between A and A. So I don't know. So if you hear me say Balaam, I'm talking about Balaam. If you hear me say Balaam, I'm talking about Balaam. It's B-A-L-A-A-M. Now he was, um, I suppose, a fairly noticeable prophet of, of a false god or false gods. In Numbers 22. Now he was tasked with cursing God's people. But he wasn't able to. And I believe that this is a picture of uh, false teachers in a way. Because false teachers are false prophets. They do not teach the true gospel of the living God. Therefore they teach a false gospel of a false God. A God of their own making. And they try to spread their nonsense onto true Christians. But God protects his people. He may allow them to fall for falsehoods to a certain extent, but he will never allow his people to be tricked out of the kingdom of heaven. He will never allow a false prophet to snatch his people away from him. Uh, I have a bunch, I'm not going to read them just for time's sake. Uh, John 10, 28, uh, Philippians 1, 6 and 1 John 2, 19. Uh, John 10, 28 is God will not allow People will be snatched away from him. The Philippians one is that Jesus will complete the work he does in people. And First John 2.19. Um, basically, if people leave the faith, they were never truly of the faith. You can go look at those verses yourself. Just give them a brief summary just for time's sake. Uh, what I mean. I don't really have much of a time constraint, but it's, you know, I don't want to keep you too long. Anyway. God keeps his people. Is essentially the message I'm trying to get across. If you think you were once one of God's children but if you have since left the faith you were never truly of the faith those god has he keeps the battle between true and false teaching in the church is the battle between god and man man may gain some ground 
but only as much as God permits. He's in control. Any supposed wind on the side of the false teacher is a wind that God has sovereignly foreseen, considered, and allowed. It is wonderful wisdom and divine knowledge. It is a wind that God has deemed would not be too damaging to his own side or too victorious for the opposing side. Finally, Korah uh, was someone who led a, re a revolt against Moses in Numbers, I believe. Uh, he was a Levite, so seemingly one of God's people, one of the best of the best of God's people. But he showed his true colours by revolting against Moses. And he revolted for a few reasons, for example, jealousy against Aaron, he wanted to have a higher position. But he led a revolt against Moses. He died. Because of his actions, he was killed. This shows that there are those who seem to belong to God, but will eventually turn against him. Because they are not truly his, they will face the eternal death in the lake of fire. Are you right with God? Are you a true or a false convert? You better be sure. I think we'll leave it there, so I don't want to go too much over time. We'll get this application, though, I think, for today before we go. False doctrine hurts people. It creeps into the church unaware. It gets a stranglehold and it hurts people. There's no excuse for false doctrine. There's no wishy-washy language of, oh, it's... It's just harmless. Now this is bla this is heretical false doctrine. Secondary issues, like with the charismatic issue. Like with the charismatic issue, that is, I know I speak pretty harshly against it, and if you are a charismatic, I'm sorry, I'm not trying to offend you. All right? I'm not sorry for speaking the truth, but I'm sorry because I upset you, that's not my goal. Um, I do have respect for charismatics, and there are great charismatic teachers like John Piper and Mike Winger. And this is an in-house issue, and I do consider you my brother and my sister. So don't let my harsh language fool you into thinking there's any animosity or anything there. But I cannot look at the damage that's been caused by false teaching. And the damage that's been caused by charismatic teaching. And sit back and think, you know, it's alright. I, I can't allow myself to do that. It's heartbreaking to hear the story of that lad who died on the, in the hospital bed. Because idiots are me. I can't allow myself to look at that like it's nothing. Now, I don't know who's listening to this, but I do know that you're a sinner. And I know you're a sinner because the Bible tells me so. And chances are you've heard a lot of this nonsense, this gunk, this crap, this false doctrine. Chances are you've heard all about... Uh, Bethel or you've heard the charismatics you've heard of the faith healers there's some lad in Ireland who thinks he can make his hands bleed and that's somehow divine you've probably heard of Joel Osteen and all of these people that's not Christianity true Christianity is recognising you are a sinner putting your faith in Christ repenting believing and avoiding the cost of your own sin which you give to Christ and he gladly takes You want to be a Christian, you don't have to give money. You don't have to fund someone's private jet. You just have to repent of your sins and believe the gospel. 
and it is my prayer that you will do that. I hope you enjoyed today's sermon. If you would like some other ways of consuming G Witch Ministries, then go to the links in my About section on my YouTube channel, and you will find my website, my TikTok, my Instagram, and my Spotify, where you can find either snippets of these sermons or the full sermons. If you would like to finance these sermons or help me monetarily, then you can also find my Patreon. You don't have to do this, but it would be greatly appreciated. Thanks for watching. God bless. And son, I'll just grab my